Uh, let's go ahead and pray. Um, Father, I thank you for, um, for the church, for uh, the church family. Um, Jesus, you could have um, saved us all by ourselves. And honestly, if we just got you, it would be amazing. But you gave us an e- even bigger gift. You gave us a family to belong to. In the Old Testament, it says that you are a father. It's the fatherless. And it says that you bring the orphan, you put the orphans into families. And that's what you've done for us. You've adopted us into your family through the person and work of Jesus. And I pray, God, you would teach us today um, how to be your family, how to live as your family, how to love as your family. You'd show us what really matters and what doesn't. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, so I was at the Man Olympics yesterday, and as the kids are saying, uh, you know, uh, it was lit. So uh, it, was, it was exciting times, uh, and, uh, and, and there was like 60 people there. Uh, and I was like, dude, this is, church plan's like a year old. You got 60 people to men's social. This is crazy. Um, and so you guys honestly are in a time of growth. And one of the things that can happen when you're in a season of growth, and I was here like a year and change ago when it was, you know, nighttime, and there was probably 15 people in a room max for the gathering on the Sunday. And to see, you guys are clearly in a season of numerical growth. And it's easy when you're growing to forget what matters because you can get caught up with logistics. We gotta, we gotta, we're growing, we gotta do stuff. And church growth guys will tell you what you need to do and stuff. And, um, and it's just so easy to forget what we're doing. And here's the thing. Um, I don't know if, uh, you guys that are parents, I don't know if you've ever heard the expression or if you'd agree with this, but they grow up fast. Uh, my, my son, oldest son, Clive, just turned nine when... Tom and Ebony met him. He was a baby. Amelia, she was a baby when I met her and to see who she is now. And um, and the thing is, is churches grow up fast too. And they grow into someone. And, uh, and, 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 and there's a difference between um, just growing up and being, and being raised, if that makes sense. And so, and so, so what, what, what um, you know, who do you want your kids to be? In the same way as members of this church at this stage, or as people thinking about becoming members of this church at this stage, you're determining what this church will look like in 20 years' time. I, and I want you to think, so those of you that are parents, I almost had a heart attack. Tom just said that the kids that were up here were just elementary school. Uh, there was like 30 of them. That's like more kids we have in our whole church seven years in. So you guys are, are very active. Uh, you guys love each other. Um, but for, I know there's a lot of parents. I just want you to think about what do you want your kids to think church is in 20 years' time? Um, it is a privilege to be in a church in this season of the church because it does dictate where it's going. The foundation of the church in the language of the Apostle Paul is being laid right now. Um, uh, my wife and I um, just bought a home. We received an insane gift, and we just bought a home, uh, and the home was built in 1955. And um, one of the key things in our neighborhood especially is how's the foundation? And it was such an interesting thing to bring a guy in, this craftsman guy, and he goes underneath, and he's looking, and, and uh, foundation inspector guy, and, and he's looking at, the, at work that was done over 70 years ago. And that work is so impacting my family's quality of life today. The, the, the man who built that isn't even alive anymore, but his work lives on. And the quality of what that house is like lives on. And so what this season is, is a foundation being laid. This first one to three, maybe five years. But a lot of people will tell you, a lot of church people will tell you, man, pretty much at that point, that's kind of what the church is going to be. Um, one of the things you'll notice, probably in a year's time, probably you're going to have a few people leave this church. Uh, actually. Uh, and don't be alarmed when that happens, because we, we know that's a very normal thing for church plants, because about two years in, people realize this is probably the type of church it's going to be. 
Early on, people think, oh, I can shift. It's small. I can make it what I want it to be. I can be a hero. I can be a leader. I can make them sing the songs I want to sing. Whatever it is, their dream for what the church can be. And then about two years in, they realize, oh, this is what the church is going to be. And if they don't love that, they're probably going to peace out. Because this is the time that determines um, what the church is going to look like. And so it's really, really cool to be here at this time. Uh, the foundation's being laid, and you guys are starting to build. And so I just felt compelled today to remind us, as, what do we want to grow into? What matters? What do you want in the, in the, in the kind of bare-bones foundation of this church that's going to last? What do you want in the DNA of the people that call this church home 20 years from now? And so today, I felt compelled to remind us what matters when it comes to church and what doesn't. And I, don't, and I want to be really clear. These are not my opinions I put this outline together, but this is what the Bible says about church. I want to be really, really clear. Um, <clears throat> so, um, and so, um, uh, yesterday at the at the Man Olympics, uh, met some of the dudes there for the first time. When they found out I was a pastor, uh, which is very common for me, when they find out, people usually do a couple things. One, they stop cussing, which always bums me out because they're a better hang when they were cussing, just being themselves. Uh, two, uh, they usually go, uh, they, they start talking to me about churches, right? Which is kind of weird. Like how many guys are teachers? I heard there were some teachers in the building. Okay. Uh, what's funny with, with, with teachers is you probably, uh, all of us went to school in some form or fashion, uh, in the United States, right? Uh, you probably went to a school at some time. And when someone tells you that, um, they're a teacher, you don't go, man, I used to go to school. <laughs> I used to live by a school. I had a friend who went to school, and I'm going to get back. I was going to get back to school actually, get a degree soon. Like, dude, I'm elementary school teacher, right? People feel this like, oh, let's talk about church. And one of the things that they'll ask, kind of church related, is, how's your church going? And I always wonder how detailed I should answer that question. Is that is that purely small talk, or do they really want to know? And do they want to know if it's going good, if it's going bad? They want to know, are we successful? Are we unsuccessful? And that reminds me of a conversation I had at a Christian leadership conference in Atlanta about. Um, probably 11, 12 years ago now. And I, I've worked at several large churches, and the one that I was working at at the time was about 30,000 people. And, uh, and I was at uh, a conference, and a pastor, um, he walked up to me, and he heard what church I was a part of, and he's from another part of the country, and he said, man, you guys are so successful. How do you do it? And I can remember, as somebody who's been on staff for a few years, being so confused because as a church, we, we were highly dysfunctional. We had multiple moral failures. We had people being worked 70 hours a week. We never seemed to have enough money. We would buy buildings we couldn't afford. We had a turnover rate of three dozen pastors in six years. Not healthy, just so you guys know. Um, my brother-in-law joined a cult that, was, that he joined in a small group at that church. It's not funny. Like, it's not funny. Like, he's legit. Um, Because there was so little oversight. There was no eldering or pastoring. No one cared. If you just sign up on a paper to start a group in a home and we'll send people to you, we know nothing about you. I just remember thinking, like, how on earth could this cat think we're successful? Because he didn't know our, our dirty little secrets. And because he probably defined success like most North American churches do. Um, and they, they, they refer to what, I, what I'll call B cubed or B3. And that's butts, bucks, and buildings. Now, butts, I'm not talking squats. Everyone relax. I know Instagram's way more detailed than anyone wants it to be these days. Everyone posting their workouts. Butts, butts in seats, okay? People in a building. Um, bucks, money in the budget, money in the bank. And then buildings, whether or not you have a building and how tremendous it is and how cool is the rock climbing wall in the youth ministry. 
Now, a lot of us assume, right, if there's, if there's more money in the bank or uh, there's, there's, there's a cool building or there's more people there on Sunday that things are going well. But you need to know that more or bigger is not always better. Church world, we, we lose sight of this in the North American church. We know this in almost every other part of our life. Jared Wilson in his book, The Gospel Driven Church, said, it's not always true that healthy things grow bigger. Sometimes healthy things shrink like me, for instance, when I'm eating right and exercising. And sometimes unhealthy things grow like cancer or gangrene. By the way, the message I'm preaching today is not that it's bad to have a big church or that it's good to have a little church. But what I am saying is that as you grow, you need to be aware that being a big church isn't inherently successful in the eyes of God. And being a small church isn't inherently a failure. I think we need new metrics to define success. And I want this in the foundation of this church early on. How do we know if we're succeeding? What does that look like? Um, And I think we often count the wrong things um, for the wrong reasons. And I think we count the wrong things sometimes because we're we're addicts. You might not know this. Even if you're an introvert, you love crowds. Uh, Sky Jathani wrote that there are four main ways to experience transcendence. The idea that you're part of something bigger. Uh, And and the first three are obvious. Music, sex, drugs, right? Sex, drugs, rock and roll. Uh, um, music, right? There are times where music in its right context can just be an amazing space to literally can change your emotion, can change the entire vibe of a situation. One time I was hanging out with friends getting drinks and um, we're at this cocktail bar in San Diego and it was so funny because um, I kind of felt like things were down and then I, a little while later I felt like things were awesome and then I realized they just changed the music. <laughs> like the mood shift was the Spotify playlist. Um, sex in its right context is, is right powerful stuff. We know people do a lot of dumb things for sex, uh, and a lot of uh, amazing moments can have. It's a powerful thing. Uh, drugs, obviously, uh, powerful ability to transform how you're feeling for better or for worse. Um, and then, but the fourth one is crowds. Crowds is, is where we can experience transcendence. And you probably, if you've been in church, if you haven't, no big deal. Um, but if you grew up in church, you probably heard sermons, especially if you grew up in youth groups. Uh, right, uh, sex and drugs are bad. And maybe if you grew up in the Jesus people movement, right, back in the day, maybe rock and roll was bad too. Maybe you burned your, your Rolling Stones records and you rebought them when you found out you could listen to it again. <laughs> but have you ever heard a sermon on the danger of crowds? Jesus thought they were very dangerous. Again, if we use the metrics that the American church has used, the Western church has used for about 30 years now, and up until about 30 years ago, this wasn't the case. There was no megachurches. Jesus was a, he was a church planning failure. He had a group of 12 who did not get it. They really lacked faith. Like in Matthew 28, they're on the, 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 he's about to ascend into heaven. He's resurrected. They all saw him die. And it says, but some doubted. Really? I think my people lack faith. Like this is ridiculous. You're like, man, are we going to get enough kids workers? It was like, dude, these guys were doubting Jesus was God post-resurrection as he ascended into heaven. I don't know, man. We'll see. (laughs) CGI, you never know. Jesus um, seems to be more worried about the quality of our churches than the amount of churches or the size of those churches. He doesn't want a bunch of bad track houses that are falling apart in 10 years because they were used with, with bad materials. He wants strong churches made with great materials. Paul echoes this statement in the New Testament that one day church leaders are going to be held to account by Jesus. We're going to be judged 
for the quality of our work. Did you know that? My, my buddy right now, um, a coffee shop is being put into the building we meet in in San Diego. It just opened today, actually. It's a really nice coffee shop called James Coffee. And they, it's been delayed a few times because of our city's permitting issues. That, that, that we're going to have, that, that, that Paul uses the metaphor that the church is a building and that we're going to have to be assessed. And it's going to be a lot more intense than the permitting issues with San Diego, as intense as that was. That, that, that our work's going to be evaluated. First um, Corinthians 3, um, 10 to 15, the Apostle Paul writes this. According to God's grace that was given to me, he's talking about being a church planner, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds it. Now, what I want to say real quick is these elders are helping um, lead this church and plant this church. You're all helping build this church. This is one big construction crew. It's the family business. You build churches. And, 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 and so we all have to be careful how we build. That's why this message is so important, I think. Verse 11 says, For no one can lay any other foundation than that has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will be obvious for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved as only through the fire. And so Paul seems to say that when God judges our work one day as church leaders, he'll be more concerned with the substance of our churches, the raw material, not the size of the church. He doesn't care if you've got a five-story. He cares, is it made of the right stuff? Is Jesus the foundation? Is, 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 is receiving Jesus' love and loving like Jesus the foundation of your church? And the reason I'm so burdened by this idea is this, is that um, this beautiful church that God loves so much, restored to Mecula, you might find yourself down the road swerving towards what looks like success. More money, more real estate, more people. I mean, Puff Daddy had it right, more money, more problems, okay? More people, more problems. But you're actually swerving toward failure, At the same time, um, there are so many seasons where this church might feel like a failure when your church is so successful from the eyes of heaven, the only only judge who matters. So as you grow Restored to Immaculate, you should be asking, what kind of church are we becoming? Not just how large are we or how cool are we? And again, I'm hoping the Holy Spirit would give you guys a a lens change today to see the qualities that define success to Jesus. Again, um, we, in most of our life, we do not always believe that quantity is better. There's a steakhouse in San Diego called Born and Raised. It's a consortium holdings restaurant. They make, it's, this, it's this bougie steakhouse in Little Italy. And you can get a steak there for $50 to $150, depending on how big you go, what you do with the meal. Insane prices, but insane quality. Okay? Now, if I were to approach you, and if you're a vegetarian, what's that mushroom they like? The little place is steak. Portobello, right? Let's say the, the dopest portobello. A filet mignon from Born and Raised, or whatever cut you like, ribeye if you want to go cray. Um, or I can offer you a fresca taco from Taco Bell, 50 of them, or 50 beef soft tacos from, soft, uh, from Taco Bell. Um, which one do you pick? Now, here's what I need to say. You might go, dude, I read Dave Ramsey books. I want to be a good steward. I'm taking the tacos. It's got to be one meal, okay? It's one meal. 50 soft tacos from Taco Bell or a 
amazingly prepared. There are less of these dishes, but they're better, right? And only a fool would say, man, 50 soft tacos from Taco Bell or 50, you know, vegetarian. <laughs> Good luck if that's vegetarian, whatever. <laughs> Quality matters more than, than quantity. We know that. I have some dear, dear friends of mine who've been divorced and talking to them, all of them would say, and some of them remarried, they say, I'd rather have one awesome marriage than three bad ones. You can have three junk, junk cars that you can't sell or one awesome car that runs. Great, no one picks the bad quality. But in the church, for some reason, we do that. In the Western church, um, it's like you can have a thousand people in a room listening to a leader talk and not living like Jesus. Or you can have a hundred ride or die disciples, lovers of Jesus. Jesus goes, I'll take the hundred every time. We go, I'll take the thousand. We'll get into, I think, why in a second. And so what is quality, all right? That's, that, that's why this matters. Um, 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 what is quality? It's people who love Jesus and love each other with everything they have. People who actually obey Jesus. It's not great music, great speaking, or a great building. It's the quality of the disciples. Again, if you have quantity made up of quality, awesome. If you have quality without quantity, awesome. If you have quantity without quality, failure. So we want our discipleship to be focused on, on quality, not quantity. All right, so, so quality, what is it? Quality, number one, isn't how many people attend, it's how many people you send. Quality isn't how many people attend, it's how many people you send. The amount of people on Sunday can make us feel like our church has like got it going on or it doesn't got it going on. Um, recently, I was sitting with a church planner who in his first year had 500 people at his Easter service. And I love this guy, I care about this guy, um, but I did feel self-conscious, at least initially, because then he said, how many did you have at Easter? And Easter's like your big number. It's, like, it's kind of like your max bench press in high school. It's like, man, what, your, what, what, do, you, what do you max out at? Um, it's like for pastors, it's like, oh man, Easter, dude. We had like, you know, whatever. Um, and I was extra self-conscious because um, we were kicked out of our gathering space two weeks before Easter, just like all the church, church growth books say to do. We changed our Easter service from morning to night because that's the only building we could get with less than two weeks out. And everyone had made plans to be with their families uh, at night. Um, and, um, and so with those logistical realities, we had one of the smaller services of the entire year. We had 100 people. And uh, I was feeling a little bummed about that. But then I thought about, this wasn't this Easter, this was last year's Easter, 2018. I thought about the people who attended Easter at Restored L.A., and I thought about the people who attended at Restored South Bay. And I thought about the people who attended a, an insane Easter brunch at Restored Temecula, even though it was pre-launch. And I was like, wait a minute, we had 800 people at Easter. We didn't have 100 or, or 500. And here's the other thing I know is that all the churches that I just mentioned were all sent out by Restored Uptown, or, or their leadership teams were made up of people who were sent out by Restored Uptown, like to the one that our footprint was so much bigger. When we started Uptown, our leadership roster was Brad Sarian, Tom Logue, Nicole Pham. Then we, and then we kind of pulled the Warriors, grabbed Kevin Durant, uh, I mean, Danny Kimlot. Uh, and, then we, and then Herrick Berga jumped on. Um, that was like the dream team of church planning. And I think if we kept it together, we could have built something big. That would have like really impressed people. I really do think we could have. But to build something better, we sent and we sent and we sent. And I got to tell you guys, I listened to your celebration stories. I was with the Restored LA, hanging out with their staff team. And I said, hey, I just want to give you some updates around the family of churches. And I played um, some of the stories from Restored Temecula's one-year anniversary gathering. And there were so many beautiful stories. There's Brandon's story and Eric's story and Dakota and Tiffany. And those stories don't happen from a human perspective. God can do whatever he wants. But from a human perspective, as far as we know, those stories don't happen 
if Restored South Bay doesn't release Tom and Ebony to come plant, you know, and Mark to lead worship, and Colton to play drums, and, and again, I'm not talking about um, the, the pastors, just the local expression of that bride. Um, South Bay sent you guys pretty much your whole worship team initially, so you're welcome. <laughs> they stole ours in the first place, though, so I don't feel bad for them. Just kidding. But over the years, our church has been so happy to release people. Um, Restored Uptown, then we sent away Herrick, who took over for Brad, who we sent to start Restored LA originally. And Herrick is one of the most gifted shepherds, one of the most loving people um, I've ever met in my life is Herrick Berga. And behind the scenes, he's consistently that. There are pastors who are like, man, I'm loving up front, and they're just total jerks. Herrick's not one of those guys. Tom's not one of those guys either, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But like, what keeps Herrick up at night is, are you encountering Jesus's love, and are you loving each other well? It reminds me of the Apostle John, just the Apostle, like, beloved children, love one another, man. That's, if Herrick ever gets a tattoo, it should be that verse. <laughs> and it was hard to send them. Like, it really was. And so what I want to say is, restore Temecula in the future. Will you carry on this family tradition, this value of Jesus' people of sending? There's going to be a day when it's going to eat into your margin to plant a church. We're going to send people and money and stuff, and gifts, and it's like, yeah, because there's, there's names and faces we don't know yet who Jesus knows that were just like us when we were here, and we want to see them in, in, in brought into a family to know a father through this big brother Jesus. Number two, quality isn't how big your budget is. It's how much is sacrificially given. In Luke chapter 21, um, in the words of Tom Logan, you guys tracking? You Okay. Okay, all right. Seems very lackluster, so I'm going to try to speed this thing up. All right, Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. Um, it says, he looked up there at the temple, Jesus and the disciples. He looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. And again, we know from the way Jesus describes their giving and from writing from the time, uh, contemporary writing, that uh, when, there was a lot of people who'd kind of show off when they would pray or they would give. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. They'd literally have trumpets. They, they would pay people. They'd have like mini, um, it was like New Orleans, like mini parades, like, I'm coming up to give a lot of money, right? And they would like drop it in. Everyone would know about it. You're awesome. You're giving. Um, and, uh, and so that would happen. But then verse two, so, so that's happening. And then Jesus goes, hey, check out that lady in the back by herself. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. It's like two pennies, two dollars. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. And in Greek, the more there is actually a quantifiable amount. Like it's, it means more to him. It's like it's more in the eyes of heaven. Like, like you'd count it as more. Verse four, for all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. Second Corinthians 8, uh, Paul, um, I don't have time to read it, verses 8. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 7, look it up. Um, but it says that the Macedonians gave out of their poverty, that, that they were like fighting to get in. He's like, hey, guys, don't even really need to. And they're like, no, 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 we want to get in on this. We want to share in the grace of God in blessing the church of Jerusalem who was going through a tough time, that they were investing into that together. And so it's not bad to have a big budget but having a big budget isn't inherently successful. Our giving should be motivated and be a demonstration of the gospel. Jesus and later Paul, again, applaud people for giving sacrificially. Um, a dirty little secret with churches is you can have a big budget and have a church full of stingy people. Um, you can have a large church 
or a church in a wealthy area that you know you can get by without people giving sacrificially. Um, someone can make a million dollars a year and give 75 grand and feel pretty good about themselves while simultaneously not being proportionally generous. They give out of their surplus. Um, um, you, you, right, you can have people, um, you can have one or two people give a large number, one that's proportionally small and unsacrificial, or a lot of people who give a little, which is how a lot of megachurches get by, in my experience, working at them. And, um, and again, um, so it's not about the number. And by the way, like, more money to give away even from the church. So it's not even about, we're not talking about, like, pumping up. By the way, most church planners are underpaid uh, and stuff like that. So, again, I, I would love to see these guys uh, have increases in the future and stuff like that. Um, that's not what I'm getting at. My point, or to buy a building. I'm not even into buildings, as you'll see. Um, but more money to give away to, 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 to sow into schools and to sow into human trafficking, to sow into more church planning, and to sow into missions work. Like, even outside of these walls, there's more money than we even realize. And so, for me, I like to fight to push people to be generous. And it's really awkward, but it's about their discipleship to Jesus, not even about our bottom line. There's times where I even say, hey, I want you to give a lot and don't give it to our church. I'll even do that sometimes. Because I'm like, I don't want you to think it's about me, but your heart, who you are, matters to Jesus. And you can't be stingy and, and, and believe in a generous gospel. But here's where I want to affirm this church, man. Last year, our family of churches raised $140,000. That's four churches made up of mostly people under 40. That's most of our churches. Um, our church is pretty much entirely millennials in Uptown. Like, it's, it's very small. Uh, uh, and, um, and for those of you guys counting, again, 140,000 should get them by for over three years in the country in Northern Africa they're in, which will allow them um, time to focus on learning um, the type of Arabic they need to learn. It's not classical. It's very niche and regional. Um, instead of spending their time fundraising and trying to pretend like the work is going faster than it is, which a lot of missionaries are tempted to do, I've had to talk to them. They just write newsletters. I have to make up stories. I said hi to a guy at a coffee shop. Seems like an open door. He literally opened the door, and I said hi. <laughs> Which is what so many missionaries feel pressure to do because they have to prove themselves to donors. May it never be with our leaders sent cross-culturally where ministry takes a long time to get off the ground. The last thing they should have to worry about is constantly fundraising. And I'm so proud of our churches because we gave so much money to something that would not benefit us personally. I know so many leaders who can't raise money to buy a building that the people paying for it are going to sit in each week. He said, names we don't know, faces we don't know, language we don't know, across an ocean, people we may never see until heaven, out of abundance. This was giving in faith. Again, these beautiful, nameless, faceless people in Northern Africa were going to meet Jesus. 140000 dollars I don't want to brag, but I guess I will. Uh, Uptown, our church gave $75,000, and the couple came out of our church. But again, 100, 120 millennials. And the wealthiest guy in our church could hardly give because he had gone through a real rough time with his business. Like, again, man, that, 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 Jesus loves that. Maybe, maybe a bigger church could, could have raised a million. I don't know. But, man, pound for pound, the generosity got me so excited. Because I knew people were giving what they, really out of abundance, man. They weren't giving, like, oh, I'll just throw this in. Like, it, it was sacrificial. And then um, after that, a few weeks later, uh, Harbor City, a church we partnered with in South Africa, we were just with, as some of you guys know, um, it's in a third-world country with a broken economy. A church also made up of mostly millennials raises um, between five and 7,000 U.S. dollars on one Sunday to also give to a group of people. It's also, it's, we're closer to Northern Africa than they are. That's how huge Africa is as a continent. These gifts, again, just make my eyes well up when I think about the giving out of 
um, to giving sacrificially, not out of abundance. Number three, um, quality isn't having a neat church of well-adjusted fake people. It's a messy community where messy people love one another deeply. Quality isn't having a neat church of well-adjusted fake people. It's a messy community where, where people love one another deeply. In John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus says this to the church. He says, I give you a new command, love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I think oftentimes uh, we go, man, how are we going to reach people? How are we going to reach the culture? Do we need to change our music? Do we need to rip our jeans? Do we need to be a cussing pastor with tattoos? Do we need to be cool? Do we need a, you know, a pirate ship at the kids' ministry? Whatever it is, we've we, we got, we got to find a way, the best coffee, um, you know, is it the carpet, whatever. And it's like, Jesus goes, if you want it, like, people to know who I am and believe that I was sent by the Father to you, evangelism strategy, love each other. Love each other. Uh, a couple different examples of this. I also realized I preached on love last time I was here. One or two of these stories you might have heard before, but they're still fantastic. So I'm um, sorry about that. Um, Philippians 4, verses 2 through 3, just different ways, different examples of love. Um, Paul says, he says, I urge Eudia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my workers whose names are in um, the book of life. Um, he, he's like, man, agree in the Lord. Like, I'm, I'm entreating you. I'm begging you, Eudia and Syntyche, Right? And I found myself, so there was these two women, they were on the Apostle Paul's ministry team. So probably pretty gifted ladies, probably have a level of character to travel with Paul, minister with Paul, help plant churches with Paul. Um, And now they're beefing, which they tough sitch for Paul. Got a a Christian cat fight on his hands. And and I found myself recently, about a a year and a half ago, I was in a real Udia Sintiki situation in our church. There were two women in our church who both had ministered at my side, who are amazing leaders, amazing followers of Jesus generally. Both had executed so much amazing ministry. And they got to this point where um, one of the girls was really, when she's out of, in a bad spot, she's very hard to be around. She's very negative and angry and loud about how she feels. Uh, and it's like negative stuff. And, and, and she can, you know. Um, and then this other girl we knew um, had gossiped about her quite a bit to other people. And... Um, which definitely bumped me out. And we went to the meeting, and, and again, we knew one of them had gossips. I knew the, I knew the girl who had been gossiped, had, had gossiped uh, about, uh, so sorry, I knew the girl who had been gossiped about knew she had been gossiped about. So I knew if this gal doesn't own that, even if they're like, oh, I love you, it's fine, it's going to feel hollow, and it's not going to go well. And I don't want to be like, hey, also, though, you've been gossiping, you know? Like, that's a, a tough space. So it put us in an awkward spot, and so we went through the meeting, and I watched these women who started out kind of defensive, begin to see where each other were coming from as sisters and not as people they were competing against. I watched one woman apologize for how she made the other one feel and how insensitive she had been. And then I watched the other gal unpromptedly confess that she had been gossiping about the other woman. She admitted to being jealous of her life and felt entitled to gossip to her friends. She, on her own, volunteered to go back to those friends, both to say she was wrong, but to call them all to repentance. What I love about this story is that neither of them left our church. Both of them remained leaders. I hate to say it, that's a rare story in churches. 
Usually it's, that's what the world thinks, right? Like gossip, they're mean to each other, they, they, they backbite, right? We just bounce around from church to church. We have one person hurts us and we bounce around and, and that didn't happen. What I want you to know is that was success sitting in that living room that day. It's not as sexy as a crowd of 800 people chanting or whatever, but it was success in the eyes of heaven. You're loving each other. Um, uh, we, uh, Royce, uh, one of my elders, I mentioned him earlier, he was going through a tough time with his business and, um, and uh, he actually had two people in the church who were employed by him. And he, he said we could share the story and stuff, so it's cool. Um, and, uh, and one of the guys that was employed by him, tough situation, one of our elder candidates, who's becoming an elder in a few weeks, a guy named Adam Jones. Uh, he might be the first elder candidate in American history with a neck tat. Uh, amazing guy. Um, and, uh, and he worked for Royce. And I remember Royce just hit me up and he says, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to have to lay some people off. Like, I want to give people a head start to start looking for work because I know we're not going to make it. They did a product launch that didn't work out. And he said, I want to honor them and give them a decent severance, give them time. Um, so just pray for me because I'm just really nervous. He said, one of the guys I might have to lay off is Adam. I was like, oh, man, that's going to be awkward. Like, uh, he's in our elder meetings every other week. And, um, and then um, behind Royce's back, in the best sense, Adam texts me. And he doesn't mention himself. He just says, hey, man, can you pray for, can you pray for Royce? Because he loves the people at our work so much. And he has to make some really tough decisions about laying some people off. And we just pray that God would, God would comfort him as he does that. He didn't say, hey, like, pray Royce would, like, you know, maybe could, re, you know, uh, maybe talk to him about keeping my job. He was just thinking about Royce. And then um, we had an elder meeting, and I didn't know if he had talked to him or whatever. And, uh, and I was like, hey, guys. We started, we were about two minutes into the meeting. And it seemed, it was fine, by the way. And I said, hey, guys, are we okay? Like, are we, are we okay? And I meant, like, because they had a conversation maybe about Adam being, you know, let go. And Adam goes, oh, about, about Royce laying me off? I was like, oh, he laid, he's like, oh, yeah, he laid me off two hours ago. And I was like, oh, okay. So we're just here. No one's getting stabbed. This is fine. Like, this, this is where we're at. And I was like, how are you doing? And he's like, I'm bummed, but I know there was nothing else he could do. And I know it was so hard for him. He's like, I'm so grateful for him. And then Royce's like, dude, I love you. And we were in this um, conference room with clear windows. And so the entire rest of the office is watching this happen as they got laid off. And they're like, literally just cr- crying and honoring each other. And they prayed for each other. And instead of villainizing Royce, Adam loved him. Um, Royce had to let another guy go from our church, which is why most people are like, you shouldn't do business with people in church, except as you can see, you can. If, if you don't have love, yeah, it'll make your life messy. And, and as he told him, he was letting, as, he, as Royce tells this other guy is being let go, the other guy, uh, as he's telling the other guy is being let go, he's crying, delivering the news. And the guy that gets let go walks over to him and hugs him and goes, it's okay, buddy. <laughs> um, there was just like this deep love in the community. And again, this is not normal. The gospel changes how we do business. It changes how we do family. It's, it changes how we do um, love. Um, another situation in our church a few months ago, and I think I shared a little bit about this last time, but um, there's a couple in our church. There's a guy who's a, who's a worship leader in our church and a gal who had been with us from the very beginning. Um, we watched her meet, meet this guy, watched her get married. Um, we traveled with her. And, um, and I was called over to their house and recently, um, um, the husband's uh, father had passed away, and he was in a really tough spot. And, I, and, he, and uh, so she called and said, hey, can you come over, one of the elders? Like, I'm on the phone with the counselor, but I'm, like, really worried about my husband. And I was like, what's going on? She's like, I can't really describe it, but he's, like, not himself. And I went to the house, and, um, and, 
And my friend was on the floor, curled up in a ball. And they told the story publicly. Um, and he was sobbing. And he was talking incoherently and non, just nonsensical. And it was clear, um, I didn't know what he was saying, but it was clear he was afraid and he was confused. And he was talking about 9,000 uh, miles a minute. And it turned out that he had gone into a, a manic episode. And a very, very intense one. And, um, and it was two months before his baby boy was supposed to be born. And so his wife's seven months pregnant, and her, her husband is, 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 is just in a tough spot. He's literally in psychosis, and his life started, their life started to spin out of control. Um, he was acting erratic. He needed to get help. Um, we took him to hospitals. They literally wouldn't take him in. We would do everything we could to get him to the hospital. They'd go, oh, we, we don't have a bed for him, or he'll be fine. He just needs some meds. Um, and being manic, he didn't think he needed help. And so even though he was acting psychotic and he was terrifying his wife, um, we couldn't convince him to get help because when you're manic, the last thing you can do is, is believe people. That's one of the hard parts about it. Um, you, you think you're like on another level. Other people aren't. Um, uh, he eventually um, would get an altercation with someone. He would get 5150. He was arrested. Uh, he was put in a mental hospital, and he was in a mental hospital while his beautiful baby boy was born. And, um, and that baby was born. While that baby was being born, even though he couldn't be in the room, his wife was not alone, her GC leader was at her side, a, a woman, by the way. <laughs> and she was there coaching her through the delivery, serving in, her way in, her, in a way that her husband, he would have loved to, he just couldn't at the time. And because he was so unstable during his manic episode, and because we couldn't um, make him get help, his wife made the really hard decision to get a restraining order. For a time, she knew it wouldn't last. Um, and uh, she needed a place to stay, and so we got her a condo to stay in for almost for free. Um, people were bringing her multiple meals a day. Our church daily was interacting with, with both of them, um, caring, for her, uh, and, uh, her, caring for her husband in a way she couldn't and caring for her in a way that, that he couldn't. And, um, and we, went up, we went over to their house, and they had just, he, had, he had thrashed their house, and um, literally he'd like demolished it just in, in a state of psychosis. And... Um, there was so often where we'd try to convince him to take medicine or we'd sit with him and all that could really get through to him was our presence. Even when he struggled to like hear our words, he knew we were there. We had prayer nights for him with so many people. Um, eventually he would accidentally cause a lot of property damage due to an accident that never would have happened if he was in his right mind. Uh, he had damaged his condo and the condos next to it. There was some flooding and uh, he ended up being checked into a hospital and, um, um, through this whole period, you guys, people are checking in. They're crying with them. They're listening to them. They're, they're praying uh, with his wife. Um, after the condo was destroyed, an interior designer in our church jumped in to help. We had another guy with commercial real estate experience negotiate uh, with the insurance companies and the HOA. Um, he went to a treatment center out of state, which we helped, uh, some people helped pay for, and some people had to go with him to, to take him across the country on a plane. Um, and long story short, he got much better. And he came back. And he came back, and he's been through so much, and they've been through so much, and this family just hasn't been together. Like, if you can imagine your son's two, almost three months old, you've never held him. We've held him once, and you don't remember it. And, um, and he found out when he got back that because of the restraining order, they couldn't be together, and so we had to get that overturned. And so his wife went to go have the restraining order taken off, and, um, and um, the thing with restraining orders in the state of California, and this is probably a good thing, is oftentimes women get them when they're in a, a point of distress in an abusive relationship. And while they can think clearly, they get them, and then oftentimes they'll go back to reverse them and put themselves in danger. Again, uh, when there's domestic violence and abuse and stuff. And so, um, so they, we, 
they, uh, long story, she went and she said, hey, can we reverse it? And so the, the state actually won't reverse it for like six months. It's pretty common uh, for the safety of the person, even though this was a totally different situation. And so he found out, getting back, hey, I've got three more months at least where on paper I can't be with my child and my wife, which when you've already been through what you've been through, like I just can't tell you. And so um, they said in a month later, do some treatment stuff. Maybe we'll talk in a month. And basically like attorneys room saying, hey, there's no precedent to like lift a restraining order in three months. And it's just not a thing. And so there was a makeup restraining order day. And what we heard is that if the judge didn't reverse the order, that it would be 60 more days, like minimum. And um, for a family that had been through so much, that just sounded so awful. And so she sent the text out and said, hey, guys, we have this restraining order, uh, you know, trying to get it lifted day. Um, Can you guys come? Can any of you guys come? And it was uh, like a Wednesday, middle of the day. And um, I remember uh, I came to the building. Were you there, Eric? Yeah, came there. And there was like 10 to 15 people took work off to be in this room. The judge literally said, I've never seen... People here for a restraining order uh, hearing before this many people in support of someone. And um, we went in, and they had to pretend, you know, it was just a tough situation. We went in, and the judge just looked at him and said, um, Sir, I believe you no longer are a danger to your wife. And that um, it was very extenuating circumstances uh, tied to mental health, that this was not an abusive situation. And because of that, I am lifting the restraining order immediately. And, um, as far as our crew was concerned, it was like we had won the lottery. Like, I, I honestly, like, I know we were cheering and screaming, like, hey, you can't, be, you can't talk in a courtroom. Uh, we had to, like, take it outside. And they embraced. And I remember as far as our like, we, we were just, we were, they were embracing, and we were laughing and crying. And again, I don't think I've been happier in my life. I, I don't think I've felt happier, uh, if that makes sense. Like, I knew... Um, I know I, like, I probably was happier when we got married, and I was for sure happier when our kids were born. Um, but the sheer joy I felt in that moment, I mean, it was like we had won the Super Bowl. And it is still a journey, and it is messy, but they are, they're still being loved and walked with. And um, I am so, so grateful for the church. It wasn't us as pastors being superheroes. It was day in and day out. And then when he came back in, he, had, he, did, he even he said, man, I have so much shame. Um, he said, I feel like I was blacked out for like two months, if you're at a night where you got drunk, um, not that you've done any time recently or whatever, but and then you wake up and you're like, what happened? He said, I feel like my life was a blur like that. And I don't know all the stuff that I did and I just feel ashamed. And I, we got to say, man, over and over again, people got to look at him and say, bro, you don't need to be ashamed. You were sick and we love you. People that get cancer don't need to be ashamed when they walk into this church and you don't either. We love you. You're our brother. And, um, and so for us, man, that, 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 was, that was quality. What you need to know is that whole journey with them was quality. It did not look sexy. It, it would not, you're not going to do a leadership conference on the messiness of that. But man, it was successful in the eyes of heaven. My last point is this. Quality isn't a consumer being entertained or a leader being admired. It's Jesus being exalted. Quality isn't a consumer being entertained or a leader being admired. It's Jesus being exalted. Now, I don't know if you've ever walked out of a worship service and heard people say, maybe you have said, I think I've said it. I hate to admit it. Where, where you say, I didn't get much out of the worship today. It's like, cool, because it wasn't for you. <laughs> you weren't being worshipped. Um, you need to understand, this isn't a concert, um, and the guys up here aren't doing like stand-up comedy or like a TED Talk. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul describes his preaching this way, which is a trip when you think about the way we think about church. He said, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, the gospel, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I wasn't a good speaker, and I didn't have like this crazy philosophical insight that made you go, wow. 
I didn't have things that made you go, hmm. Verse two, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and preaching were not where we're not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith not, but might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. We have to come to grips with the fact that the Apostle Paul was a bad preacher, <laughs> technically. Oh, we've got more, uh, at least from an entertainment value standpoint, right? You might go, oh, it's different now. People get bored easier, right? Like, dude, end the sermon, like attention, whatever. In Acts 20, there's a guy named Eutychus, who falls asleep. He's on the second floor while Paul's preaching. He falls asleep by a window and falls out and dies. It's death by long sermon. Leaders aren't supposed to impress you with their giftedness. They're supposed to point you to the hero, Jesus. Um, A guy who understood this was a guy named John the Baptist. Might've heard John the baptizer. Baptists get too pumped. Like he wasn't Baptist. He was, he baptized people. That didn't come around for like 1500 years. John chapter one, it describes um, John the Baptist's ministry. So, so um, they, they come to him, they go, man, who are you, John? He says, who are you? Then they ask, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So they asked him, why then do you baptize if you want the Messiah or Elijah? Or the prophet, he said, I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. It's Jesus, spoiler alert. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. It's such an exalted view of Jesus. And so he ends up baptizing Jesus. And then Jesus' ministry starts. So he goes, my entire ministry is about pointing. I'm, I'm crying out. I'm a voice crying out to the one who's coming. I'm preparing a way. Jesus is coming through like the town crier. Eric yesterday at the Man Olympics. Hear ye, hear ye, right? <laughs> Jesus is coming. That's his whole ministry, right? By the way, that's still our ministry. Then in John chapter three, it gets, it gets interesting. So John has his own disciples and he goes, hey guys, our whole ministry is about pointing people to Jesus. And then some people were sent to them. And then John um, three, it says this, a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jewish leader about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and the one who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone's going to him. So you know the guy that our entire ministry is about? that we told people go to him, they're going to him. (laughs) And now we're jealous. John responded, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. They're getting competitive about ministry, which is ridiculous. But churches still do this, don't they? You can imagine his disciples. John gets it, his disciples don't. Like, man, we need to up up our baptism game. Free wetsuit with each dunk with John. (laughs) Waterproof headphones, you jump in the water. Maybe we can get some guys to go in to get it started. Like a couple people get baptized again, people won't know. And then they'll kind of emotionally, we'll get the piano going. Then we can put it on Twitter. He goes, no, no, you've forgotten what spiritual leadership is all about. John 3.30 says this. 
Next verse, he must increase, I must decrease. I'm going to read a quote from a book that describes this idea. It says, when John and his followers wrestled with his place in the story of the coming Messiah, he chose the metaphor of the friend of the groom. This is still the best metaphor for us to understand our role as leaders within the church. We are friends of the groom. Therefore, our joy is accomplished in the coming together of the bride and the groom. Our primary relationship is actually with the groom more than it is with the bride. The Christian's leader's love and allegiance is to the groom, and because of that love, he cares for, serves, and protects the bride. But the bride is not his to possess or control or stand on to get a book deal. He says this, he says, think of two best friends. One falls in love, the ring is bought, the wedding set, but the groom has an assignment with his job that sends him overseas. He can communicate with his bride over email or occasional phone calls, but the nature of his job is such that traveling back to help with wedding details and even some of his future bride's needs is just impossible. He is, of course, distraught and not able to be, he's not able to be there to help her with the wedding prep or her day-to-day struggles. Always weighing on him is a nagging sense that he cannot really look after her or protect her until he returns. So he engages his best friend. Help me, bro. Keep an eye on her. Make sure she's okay. Make sure nothing happens to her. And if there is anything she needs, try and help her as I would. And he does. At first for his friend, but then over time, something happens between the friend of the groom and the bride. The groom is mentioned less and less, And the relationship is less and less about the groom and more about him until one day he realizes he is in love with his friend's bride, with the way she makes him feel important, strong, helpful, handsome, and so on. And worse even still, she is in love with him. She has forgotten the groom and now loves the friend of the groom more. She has come to trust him and rely on him, and the intimacy that was met for the groom has been stolen by the friends. This is a broken picture of ministry, preaching, discipleship, and more. It is a broken picture of leadership that loses sight of its rightful place. A dirty little secret about a lot of churches is they are very codependent institutions with a leader who needs a crowd to affirm him and a crowd that wants the leader to entertain them. Entertain us. I like the applause. I like the act. I like the applause. I like the act. Our pastor's the best. You got to hear our pastor. Our pastor's, I mean, our pastor's different. Our pastor's cool. Our pastor's smart. Our pastor knows Greek. Pastor has cool outlines with alliteration. So, so many churches, their leaders do all the ministry and they're admired and the people receive all the ministry and are entertained and leaders are not here. I hate to say this are not here to entertain you. And they aren't here to be admired by you. They should use their gifts for the purpose that Scripture gives, to exalt Jesus. Look at him. Look at him. It shouldn't be like John's disciples. Man, they're all going to him. It should be like, look, they're going to him. The thing we've been doing the entire time, like what ministry is all about, helping people encounter Jesus, Messiah, King, Savior, friend, brother, everything. They love him. Look at him. They love him. Herrick, we did our job. Tommy did her job. Like, look at this. And when we die, they're still going to love him. And they love him more than they love us. And so quality isn't our pastor, is a great speaker. It's our pastor makes much of Jesus, and we encounter Jesus through his ministry. 
So I want to read a passage um, as a closing charge, and then Tom's going to come up to set things up. I'm sorry I went long. Um, I really do think, I honestly didn't know what time I started, and then we got into trouble. So I'm sorry about that, dude, but I hope it's close. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11, and this is for the whole church, not just leaders. But I want to pray this would become how you live your life together. 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 11, it says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Restore Temecula, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another. Welcome people into your life and into your home. And a caveat, without grumbling. It's easy to have people over. But can you do it without grumbling? But then when you remember, man, Jesus welcomed me in at great cost to himself. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. That's what the gifts are for. To serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves... As you guys set up in here, there was something supernatural happening. When people get up to speak to do announcements, something supernatural is happening. When kids are playing with your kids, something supernatural is happening. Even serving, it's not just about the preacher. Whoever speaks, they speak, but then whoever serves, serves. And, and is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything you do together as a community restored to Mecula, that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The church is his bride, and this is about him. And so would you stand um, to worship that groom? And then Tom, you want to take it away? I think, um, first of all, thank you for honoring Jesus, bro, and honoring us. Truth and love is the marker of, of a good pastor and a good Christian, frankly. I'm probably biased in what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway because I, I genuinely believe it. There's something incredibly special about this collection of people. Many of you are incredibly gifted. Um, Some of you are dormant, but many of you are incredibly gifted. Um, The way that you interact with people, the way that you lead, um, and by lead, I mean influence. Because how many of us know there's there's poor leadership? Like, I'm guilty of it so many times. Like, selfish, self-centered, what's best for me? That's not the way Jesus leads, though. That's not the way he influences How many of you know there were other leaders at the time of Jesus, right? Maybe you were sitting here and Andy's talking. Maybe you were processing some of this stuff applies to me, but some of it doesn't. Much of it doesn't. Maybe I'm not called to to lead or influence at the same level as whatever. That's bogus, if, you, if, if you're in Christ, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, there's a very unique and special calling and purpose and assignment on your life. And it's the same exact thing. It's to point the world to the glorious one, to Jesus. 
And the best way that you're going to do that, please listen to me, the best way that you're going to do that is by radically loving the people around you, whether they know him yet or not. So here's what I want to do. I want us for the next little while, about about 10 minutes left in gathering, okay? I want each of us to engage with God for two, in two ways. The first is this. God, where are you calling me to love the people around me and I'm not? Not to feel condemned, but so that you know where to apply the ointment of grace on your, on your life. Because we all need his forgiveness because we all fall short of the glory of God. But hear me say this. If you receive his grace this morning for the ways that you are unloving, what it will do is it will stir something up in you and a desire to love the people around you the way that you've been loved. Are you with me? Okay. Because hear me say this. Every single one of you in this room, you matter. There's a call in your life. And it's the same call that John the Baptist has. It's the same call that I have. Sometimes it functions a little differently. But it's all the same call ultimately. It's to point the world, even, some of us, even to some of us in the room, it's to point the world to the glorious one who loves them with grace and forgiveness and mercy when they don't love like he does. And when they, when they receive that love, that's us, when we receive that love that we don't deserve, you know, that stirs up in us a desire to please him and love the people around us the way that we've been loved. It's called overflow. And that's what all of us need every single morning. So let me pray for us. The band's going to lead us. This is a time, honestly, like kind of engage with God. Two things. How am I miss, where am I missing this love thing? Like where, how, am I, how am I specifically not loving the world the way that you love me, God? And when you can identify that, actually receive forgiveness for it. Jesus' blood paid for it. Receive his love. Are you with me? Okay, let me pray for us. Spirit, I feel like you're highlighting, um, I feel like you're, high, cliche, but I feel like you're highlighting um, parents, the way we treat our kids. I feel like you're highlighting marriages. And I feel like you're highlighting um, friendships. You've called us to honor each other. You've called us to love each other. And we can't try hard to do that. We have to receive love. We have to be recipients of love. So I pray that in the next little while, even just kind of throughout the day, that you would help us to see your love more clearly, Jesus, that it's a personal love. We're not playing games. There's a world filled with people who desperately need the love of Jesus. And there's a room right now that's... (laughs) There's a room filled with people who desperately need the love of Jesus. So Spirit, would you be gracious to us and pour the love of God into our hearts? We look to you now. We love you. Amen. I'll be up in just a bit, guys.